We are this evening in Psalm 136. It's a psalm that's a little different than any of uh, the other psalms and that it's set up for a reader response. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that churches do much reader response, at least in Baptist life anymore, but you can still find in the back of, of the hymnals a reader response opportunities, and Psalm 136 is set up for that. If you're looking at your copy of God's Word now, you'll see that uh, the second or the last stanza of each verse reads, His love is eternal, or His love endures forever, or His steadfast love is eternal. There's a Hebrew word there that translators are struggling with communicating the fullness of, and so you get all kinds of translations. You get mercy, love, faithfulness, goodness, steadfast love, and loving kindness, but in every case it is eternal. There is that repetition 26 times. You find that in Psalm 136. This would, this would work like a standard reader response in the temple. The Levitical leader would stand and he would read the first part, the first line or two of each verse, and then the, Le the Levitical choir would respond with, His love is eternal. Because we have so many different translations, I'm assuming tonight, let's, let's stick with, His love endures forever. So let's read Psalm 136 the way it was intended to be read. Here's what we'll do. Maybe this won't be a total flop. I'll read the first part of each verse, and once I've read that part, if you would, as a, as a congregation, play the part of the Levitical choir and say, His love endures forever. We'll read these 26 verses that way. Y'all set? Is that overly complicated? I'm throwing all kinds of new things at you on a Wednesday night, I understand, but hang in there with me, okay? Verse 1, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. He alone does great wonders. He made the heavens skillfully. He spread the land on the waters. He made the great lights. The sun to rule by day. The moon and stars to rule by night. His love forever. He struck the firstborn of the Egyptians His love forever. and brought Israel out from among them. His love forever. With a strong hand and outstretched arm, His love forever. he divided the Red Sea His love and led Israel through. But hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. His love he led his people into the wilderness. His love he struck down great kings his love and slaughtered famous kings. His love Sihon, king of the Amorites, his love and Og, king of Bashan, his love gave their land as an inheritance. An inheritance to Israel, his servant. His love he remembered us in our humiliation his love and rescued us from our foes. His love he gives food to every creature. His love Give thanks to the God of heaven. 
All right, now pop quiz. What do you think the main point of Psalm 136 is? Absolutely, absolutely. What is abundantly clear in Psalm 136 is the everlasting love of God toward his people. And the psalm is operating in this way. It's an encouragement to give thanks. It's a praise psalm that calls on the people to celebrate the goodness of God by remembering God's kindness to us in the past. The psalm specifically reminds the people of Israel of God's past faithfulness. From creation to the exodus to the exile, God had been faithful to the people of Israel. And his past faithfulness, his enduring love in times past, in real life historical events, serves for the people of Israel as assurance that at the present hour, in today's difficulties, God will be with them. The goodness of God, the faithfulness of God to us in our past experience serves to us as the guarantee, the assurance that in the hardships and the difficulties of this present hour that God will continue in His faithfulness toward His people. God's past faithfulness reminds us of His power for the present and the consistency of His character in showing mercy, goodness, and love toward His people. So you have an outline in front of you. You'll have one each Wednesday night. You have one on Sunday morning. I'll make a confession here. I'm really not very good with outlines at all. I'm not clever in that way. Um, I I don't alliterate. I'm just not crafty that way. So you'll probably find yourself modifying outlines as we work through Wednesday night stuff or Sunday morning stuff. But just bear with me and we'll do the best we can with outline forms that communicating to you what the text itself intends to say. Your outline reads, for these reasons and many more, God is worthy of our praise. And, 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 that, is, and that is true. That's an appropriate way of, of approaching uh, the following points that I want to make from Psalm 136. But, but each of these attributes of God's character each of these actions that God takes on our behalf are driven by the eternal love of God for His people. In other words, or let me, let me just show you one. In verse 1, we worship God. He is worthy of our praise because He is good. Because He is good. His, his love endures forever. And it expresses itself in His goodness toward His people and His goodness in general. Now, that's a very simplistic elementary statement to make about God. That's very non-controversial that God is good. Most all of us, all of us, I'm sure, are of the mind that God is good. Even those who are somewhat ambivalent about the things of God would affirm that God is good. But in, in my experience, often what we mean by that is that God conforms to what our standard, what our imagined standard of goodness actually and ultimately looks like. God is himself the very definition of what is good. I can remember sitting in an undergraduate Bible class and and the professor was dealing with a difficult doctrine and and his presentation of the difficult doctrine was pretty brash and frankly I didn't know what I felt about his presentation of the doctrine at the moment myself. But, but to my left what was, uh, was a, a brother who was about my age. We were very young, and, and he made the very bold statement 
after the professor remarked concerning what the Bible said about God's character in one particular area. And he said indignantly, I cannot worship a God like that. Now, I didn't know what I thought about the presentation, but I knew what I thought about the remark. And brothers and sisters, if, if, if what you find in the Bible of the character of God offends your sensibilities or comes short of meeting your standard of what is good, I will assure you that it's your standard that is broken and not the character of God. Who God is, is good eternally. He is the embodiment of all that is good. He is the moral standard. He is righteousness in and of himself. He is holy, holy, holy. The psalmist says, God is good, worthy to be worshipped and praised. Secondly, here's another non-controversial statement. He is God. Look at what verse 2 says. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love is eternal. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. It, it, may, it may not sound like much to say that God is God, but, but there's, a, there's a ton of truth in that simplistic statement. That God and God alone is God. That there is no competition for him. There is, there is no one that challenges his authority. There, there is no one that approaches his, his difference from us. He is God alone. He is the God of gods here, which is not to imply somehow that there are other gods in existence. It's simply a way of stating his superiority over all other gods. He is God. You think of, about a few of the things that are essential to the character of God, that he is sovereign over all that he has, as we learn to sing as children, the whole world in his hands. That's what it means to be God. He is the God of gods, the true and living God. He is the Lord of lords, the psalmist says, which speaks of his authority, that he rules, that he reigns, that he is in charge. I, I don't know about you, but I find a tremendous amount of comfort in the knowledge that on my good days and my bad days that God is on the throne that there is no cosmic battle between good and evil, and some days God wins and good things happen, and some days the devil wins and bad things happen. Sometimes evil just prevails. No, God is actively involved in every event of our life, orchestrating the circumstances of our experience to serve our good and the glory of his name. There is no detail of our life that escapes his attention. He knows the very hairs of our head. He is God. And he alone is God. Given that he is God, it is an immoral thing that we would not worship him. Given that he is God, it is an irresponsible thing that we would not worship him. It's a foolish thing that we wouldn't worship him. He is God. He's worthy of our praise because he's good. He's worthy of our praise because he's God. And thirdly, as we see in verses 5 through 9, he is worthy of our praise because he is creator. In verse 5, the Bible says, he made the heavens skillfully. In verse 6, he spread the land on the waters. In verse 7, he made the great lights. In verses 8 and 9, the sun to rule by day, the moon and stars to rule by night. His love endures forever. He, he is creator. He has made us. 
We've almost assigned the, the concept or the doctrine of creation to a, to a different category altogether because it has become a controversial thing to discuss in our day and age. But it's interesting to me how often in both the Old and the New Testament, when, when biblical writers seek under the inspiration of the Spirit to encourage their readers, their listeners, as to the power of God to be at work in their life for their good and for His glory, how often they employ the creation as an example of God's great power and authority. The fact that He has created it on its own implies, in fact, it's explicit that He lords over that creation because He has made us, He knows us inside and out and is able to address the issues that arise in our life. Now, I will admit that sometimes we, we try to do a little too much, perhaps, when it comes to the doctrine of creation. We go places the Bible doesn't intend for us to go. But the Bible is clear. God is creator. He's made the heavens and the earth, fixed the great lights in the sky, the sun by day and, and the moon by night. The Bible says that the creation is, is telling, it's witnessing to the glory of our God. If any of you are outdoorsmen, you enjoy the outdoors. There's, there's something special about being in the outdoors. Certain seasons of the year that, that seem, at least from my perspective, to speak to the glory of God in, in powerful ways. I, I enjoy turkey hunting in the spring of the year. You're in the woods and the sun just begins to break over the horizon and the birds are chirping and the world is coming alive around you. The heavens and the earth are telling the glories of God. In the storm, when the winds are so fierce that you can barely stand against them and you're concerned for your safety and that of your possessions, the heavens and the earth are telling the profound power of God, testifying to the glory of our God who is in heaven. When you find yourself on a dark country road at night apart from the lights of the city, you can see the stars, the moon in their courses, and the beauty there in the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, are telling the glory of God. When your mountain vacations and you look out at the peaks or travel the Smokies in the fall of the year as the leaves begin to turn and you witness the beauty of creation, the heavens and the earth are telling the glory of God. As much as anything, they are testifying to the power of our God to intervene in human history, even that of your own life, and to work for your good and for His glory. He is worthy of our worship and our praise because He has made us even as we are. He is Creator God. Number four, what you'll find in verses 10 through 22 is that He is worthy of our worship and our praise because He has conquered our enemies. Most of Psalm 136 is given uh, to remembering the Exodus event, reflecting back on, on that, which is really the, the epitome of what God does to save Israel as a nation all his own, the calling of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. That is, in many ways, the salvation experience of the nation of Israel. And it runs alongside, it parallels in many ways, our own individual salvation experiences in Christ. In verse 10, the Bible says he struck the firstborn of the Egyptians. 
Just a brief note about the ten plagues that came against the nation of Egypt, but all that needed to be said to bring to remembrance for Israel how God worked, how he moved in human history that they would be delivered from their bondage. Through a series of plagues, as you know well, God warned the people of Egypt that they should let them go, that they should let them go. And over and over and over again, there was resistance on the part of Pharaoh. He hardened his heart, would not let the people of God go. And God permitted in his long suffering that this, um, that this act of hardening would happen in Pharaoh's heart. And so eventually there came the plague. The, the, the death angel came across the nation of Egypt and the firstborn of all Egypt died as a result of this plague. And at last, Pharaoh let the people of Israel go. In verse 11, the Bible says, God brought Israel out from among them. He removed them from the land of, of Israel. On Sunday morning, this, this imagery, this theme is all over the Scripture. It's critically important, and it's, it's true for us in, in symbolic ways. We'll look at Colossians 1 on Sunday morning and revisit this idea a little bit. But in the early parts of our passage for Sunday morning, the Bible says that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He picked us up out of one kingdom and put us in a new kingdom. He took the people of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt and delivered them to the promised land. This is what God has promised to do for us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, the Bible says he does so with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is, he has the power to move on our behalf. In verse 13, the Bible says he divided the Red Sea. In verse 14, it says he led Israel through. It's not just a miracle that God divides the Red Sea, but the leading of Israel through within that period of time is within itself a miracle. Some esti estimate that as many as three million Israelites came through the Red Sea for them to come through in that way within that amount of time, which ensured their rescue from the nation of Egypt is in and of itself a miracle, not to mention the walls of water that stand to their left and their right as they pass through on dry ground. Here the psalmist again reminds them of what God has done for them in the past and the down payment that it means for their future destiny with God's faithfulness on their side. In verse 15, the Bible says that unlike Israel who passed through uh, with ease and safety, God hurled Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. I'm, I'm anxious for an opportunity not so far into the future to preach through on Sunday mornings um, the book of Exodus because I, I, th I think there is so much about Israel's experience that can be an encouragement to us in our journey to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We read Exodus and we think those foolish Israelites failing to realize we are those foolish Israelites. What you'll find there is the seas part and the people of Israel begin to pass through, is that the Egyptian army draws close, and, and, and they're there to take them back. And they begin to taunt them and to insult them and to threaten violence against them. And the seas collapse around them, and the enemy of God is conquered. Can, can, you, rem can you remember a, a time... When, when, when the taunts of the accuser were bearing down on you? Can, can you remember a time when it felt as though you were, you were drowning in your own Red Sea and God intervened to deliver you 
to bring victory over whatever enemy presented itself to you. There's been controversy in the last few years about, about how we rightly interpret the David and Goliath event and so many misrepresentations of, of, of that David-Goliath story that, that want to position us as David and we just need to have enough faith and some smooth stones and employ them and we can defeat the giants in our life. Can I, can I tell you that you are not the David in that story? That God is David in that story? That, that he, on our behalf, defeats, he conquers our enemy on our behalf? That he, he's not left us to, to fight the battle ourselves, but like the people of Israel, he has gone before us, ensuring victory even in the face of great opposition. God has conquered our enemy. In verse 16, the Bible says he led his people in the wilderness. In verse 17, he struck down great kings, slaughtered famous kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. It's, it, it, for a long time, it struck me as strange that, that Og and Sihon would be mentioned the way that they are. If you're in your read the Bible through in a year programs, you're probably through the first five books of the Old Testament. But maybe you remember reading of Israel's encounter with Og and, and, and Sihon and, and how that was almost set apart as, as something sort of bracketed off from the wilderness experience. So the story goes, if you're unfamiliar with it, they're wandering in the wilderness, they've come out of Egyptian bondage, and they're headed toward the Promised Land, and they're traveling the King's Highway, which is a major thoroughfare through Palestine, and it remained to be so even until the time of Jesus that sort of ran up the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And in order to pass through that way, headed to the Promised Land, they needed to pass through the land of the Amorites. And they encounter these kings along the way, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. Sihon's the big king. Bashan's a smaller town within uh, the Amorite land, and so Og is there as its lesser king. And they come approaching those areas, and they request permission to pass through, and neither of the kings will grant it. And God strikes them down through the armies of Israel and gives them great victory. Now, the reason that that stands out, of all the conquests that Israel enjoyed along the way, of all the conquests, for that matter, that Israel enjoyed after entering into the Promised Land. The reason uh, Og and Sihon stand out the way they do is that there's never any promise that God would give that land to the people of Israel in prior Old Testament text. The Promised Land was, was the product of a promise that God had made to Israel. But the land of the Amorites is just icing on the cake. What God gave them in those two battles was all of grace, it was extra. It was, as they say in Louisiana, lanyard. It was a little more than they could have ever hoped or imagined to have experienced. It was absolutely all of grace. And it, and it happens when someone raises themselves up in an effort at stopping the fulfillment of God's promise toward his people. Even the greatest kings, the most powerful leaders, cannot stop the fulfillment of God's promise in your life. One of the things that makes me want to go so quickly and spend time in the book of Exodus, as I said a moment ago, was how much similarity there is between the experience there for the people of Israel and how much, uh, how much it parallels our own personal experience. Let me give you an example. We have all of these references to what God did in Exodus and how that is the assurance for God's future faithfulness. Think for a moment if you were 
um, with the local news and you were interviewing an Israelite coming out of their Red Sea experience. Here's a people wandering in the wilderness and it was your assignment to go down and to ask them, hey, who are you and what are you up to wandering in the wilderness? How might they have responded? I suspect that they would have responded with something like, well, I was in a foreign land in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And our mediator, Moses, he led us out, and we crossed over, and we're on our way to the promised land. We're not there yet, but God has given us his law to reveal something of his character and a standard for living, and we have the tabernacle because we must live by grace. And his presence is in our midst. We're not where we're headed, but we're on the way. God is at work among us, and he, he will not leave us until he gets us home. Now, that's who we are, isn't it? There's so much of that experience. We, we may not reflect tonight on the Exodus event as the assurance of God's future faithfulness in our life, but we can certainly look back to an Exodus experience in our life as the down payment, the assurance that God will be faithful to us moving forward. If, if you're here tonight, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can look back to a time in your life when God delivered you from the domain of darkness, when he put your feet on gospel ground. You can look back to a moment in time in your life when it seemed as though there, were, there was no hope for you whatsoever. And God came to you through the work of the Holy Spirit, forgave you of your sin, washed you white as snow in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you would attest tonight that you're not where you hope to be, but you're on the way. And God has promised that he will not leave you until he gets you home. Now, you can, we can reflect in the same way the psalmist encourages the people of Israel to reflect here. There's a fifth thing in our text. God is worthy of our praise because he's good, because he's God, because he's creator, because he conquers our enemies, and fifth and lastly, because he is our Savior. I can't be absolutely certain about this, but I believe that what's being stated in verses 23 through 26 is said in the context of, of a current event for the psalmist. In other words, whereas in the previous 22 verses, the psalmist was reflecting back on the history of Israel, he, he's now reflecting on his present situation. It may just be a famine. There's a reference to food for every creature and the enduring love of God. It may even be an exile experience. It may be that they've come out of the exile. They've experienced the hardships and the difficulties of exile. It's a challenge to date Psalm 136. It does seem to be a later psalm, perhaps a psalm written after the Babylonian exile. But in any event, here the psalmist is doing what I've been encouraging you to do. He's bringing the assurances of Israel's past into the present, noting that God's faithfulness then guarantees nation. The idea of remembering in the Old Testament is not about the idea of God forgetting and then thinking one day, oh, wow, what about those Israelites? Or what about you or you or you? The, the idea of remembering is, is a return to promise. The, the prophet Zechariah, for instance, it, it, his name means God remembers. God remembers us specifically. He remembers the promise that he's made for us. In other words, God has not forgotten us. There may, there may be seasons when it seems as though God is, is distant, when there are questions or concerns about how God will do what he's promised he would do. But the assurance remains that he will ultimately remember and fulfill his promise toward us, even in a season of deep humiliation. 
In verse 25, the psalmist continues, he rescued us from our foes. That is, he saved us. We were in deep and dark danger, and God saved us from the enemy. In verse 25, he gives food to every creature. He provides for our needs. Perhaps this is a, a famine experience. In verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. We have in Christ an experience that, that yes, parallels that of the people of Israel, but I want you to know an experience that is better than that of the people of Israel. We have in Jesus a better exodus. There's a passage in the Gospel of Luke where um, the, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah come down and they meet with Jesus. Peter, James, and John are there. And the English translates that they talked with Jesus about his departure. But the Greek is actually about Jesus' exodus. If you were going to translate in English exodus and not just transliterate the way we have, you'd say departure perhaps. It's getting out. They talked to him about his exodus. In other words, the imagery of the Old Testament exodus is employed in the situation of Jesus and what he promises to do for us in delivering us from our bondage, in rescuing us from our foes. We have in Christ a better exodus. We have a, a better return from exile. You know the story of the Babylonian captivity. The people of Israel are carried away in bondage, and they live in a strange and a foreign land. There are a handful that are faithful in that strange, foreign land. Daniel is the best known among them, and God works miraculously and delivers them through Cyrus, the king of Persia, through Nehemiah, the architect of Jerusalem's reconstruction, Ezra, the priest, and the one who would reinstitute the keeping of the law of God. God brings them back after a season of departure to the promised land. We have in Jesus a better exile, a better return one that is not so arbitrary, one that is not so arduous on our behalf, for God has gone before us and done the work on our behalf. We have in Christ a better covenant. This is not something that I've created. This is something that Hebrews states emphatically, that the new covenant in Christ's blood is a covenant superior to all those covenants that came before. If you've been reading through Old Testament passages, those labor-intensive passages in Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus that talk about the covenant that God makes with Moses, there's always the condition that should you wonder, there are grave consequences. But we have through the blood of Jesus an unconditional promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That what he has done on our behalf is not incomplete or conditioned upon our obedience, but is perfectly fulfilled. It is finished in Jesus Christ. We have a promised land that is free from our enemies. Romans 8.32 may be the best New Testament parallel to the message of Psalm 136. Here's what it says. He didn't even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? For us, it's the memory of Christ's saving work that assures us of God's past faithfulness and guarantees his faithfulness for the future. How would he, who would not spare his own son, withhold any good gift or provision from his people? Aren't you glad for the kindness of God toward us? Remember tonight, 
your salvation? Where were you? What was it like? What, 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 was, what was the experience like? How did, it, how did it feel? Last night on the way back from town, we made a little short grocery trip, and Hunter, was my 10-year-old, was talking about what it felt like. And Daddy, does, is it the same for everyone when they're saved? Is their experience the same? It's a little different, isn't it? Don't you know that everyone who came through the waters of the Red Sea came through differently? Some came through with joy. Some came through scared to death that the sea would collapse on them at any moment. But they all came through. We hold this in common as followers of Jesus. We all come by grace through faith. But in some ways, we do come different. What was it like for you when God saved you? When he tore open the veil of your heart, revealed his goodness to you? Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? Are you encouraged at what you remember? When you think back to that moment in time in the history of your life, does it not serve as absolute assurance that no matter what comes our way, God is with us. He is for us. His love endures forever.